This is the ETH Podcast, and I'm your host, Jennifer Kakshuri. In this episode, I'll be talking to ETH Rector Sarah Springman and to Professor Manu Kapoor. We're going to talk about talent, a topic that is debated on the international stage in the context of colleges and universities, and also at the Times Higher Education World Academic Summit, hosted by ETH Zurich in September 2019. Sarah Springman, you're the rector of the ETH and professor of geotechnical engineering. What talent brought you here to ETH? I think uh, an ability to combine the theory behind soil mechanics and geotechnical engineering. So that's sort of a bit like making sandcastles and being able to produce the equations to explain why they stand up on a larger scale, to also being able to lead people, lead groups, be creative, have ideas, spot opportunities, and then actually run with that. And I think also an attention to detail on trying to work out how I sell the idea of a female engineer, civil engineer, coming to ETH to potentially become the first civil engineering professor female in Switzerland. Manu Kapoor, as a professor, were you more diligent or were you talented to become what you are today? Well, I never wanted to be, become a professor in the first place. My first love, as Sarah very well knows, was nothing to do with academics. It was football. And even, I mean, if I were to answer that question in that context, it's both. I mean, you have to have a little bit of talent, but that, that requires a lot of diligence, persistence, struggle. You've got to work hard at it. So I'll say it's a bit of both. So talent consists of very many different things. But mm -hmm. when did both of you for the first time realize that you had a talent in doing something? Oh, goodness. Well, I can tell you what I knew I didn't have. I knew I was never going to be a ballet dancer. I knew I, and later I knew I was never going to be a climber or a weightlifter. Um, and I think that puts everything in perspective when you suddenly realize, hey, I can do that. And so you spot opportunities where you feel motivated, passionate, enthusiastic, and where you can actually achieve something. So I'm absolutely somebody who loves to achieve. And in the old days, it was really important that people recognize, particularly my parents, and, and then said, well done. When you become older and more relaxed about it and your self-esteem goes up, you don't need that anymore. So I think it's a, a gradual process. And what's fascinating, even as rector, I'm still discovering some areas where I think I might have a little bit of talent and like trying what? to work on it. I think bringing groups together, pragmatically trying to solve problems, learning a little bit more about public speaking, also in multiple languages, and using these opportunities to try and be uh, able to be not just a cheerleader for ETH, but also to make changes for the future. What about you, Manu? When did you realize that you have a ta certain talent? I think I was just pottering along as a student in primary school and in grade six, I still remember that was the first time it was a physical education lesson and the PE teacher had us play football. And after that one session of football, he said, Manu, you should come and train with the team. And within half a year, I was playing for the high school team in sixth grade. So that was the first time I thought I, I had something that I can offer, that I can develop. And from that point onwards, it was just football all the way. Um, and then I was lucky. I mean, I, even though I broke my knee, you know, I found some other things to work with. So, 
So both of you also have an athletic background, so mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you were a triathlete. And uh, Manu, you were a professional soccer player until you had an accident. How much of the competitiveness and the, the talent you had in that field nourished the talent that you have for what you do today? I think you know, at one level, it's at a very general level. I mean, you know what it means to singularly focus and try to achieve something and work towards your goals. And I think that's something that stays with you. Um, in well, It has stayed with me in everything that I've done, be it after after football into doing a startup or teaching and then finally in research. So I think that's the single, I would, I would make that the highlight of the thing that really transfers across from athletics to, to, to any other area of life. And I remember in that context doing some sort of lifetime goals that I might have and breaking it down to, in the Olympic scenario, it's a four-year and then a one-year and then different phases during the year of what I was going to do and what my priority priorities were, what were my A priorities out of the whole list that I wrote down and therefore what action I was going to take to try and achieve that A priority. And if you were within a week, you had to do it on one of the days of that week and so on. And so that really helped me to focus on the goals that I had and to use my uh, small modicum of talent um, combined with, as Manu said, a lot of hard work. And I work incredibly hard to try and I practice and I practice and I try and do deliberate what you might call expert practice, although you wouldn't have called it that years ago, really to try and do it well so that I'm really able to repeat that time and time again if needed so that if I'm doing something, I know when I've made a mistake but the people listening to me or watching me don't necessarily see it. And that's what happens when you do deliberate practice. And I think that's a very important part of it as well. Yeah, I think another feature that, as I heard Sarah talking about practicing and hard work, it, what you transfer also is this ability to work towards your maximum capacity right at the edge and if you're there sometimes you fail sometimes you struggle but you learn to pick yourself up again but knowing that you can push yourself to that capacity or finding where that line is and sometimes even crossing it i think that transfers into what we do today as well as an engineer i can give you an analogy we talk a lot about stress and strain so we know how to compute that And we talk about the point where everything is elastic. So we've been there and done it. It's all reversible. You know, we're not terribly stressed by it. And we get to a point where we've never been before. And that's called the yield locus. And I can promise you that you have a very different multidimensional yield locus when you become rector because you haven't done these <laughs> things before. And, and then when you've experienced that and you come back inside your yield locus again, it's all a lot. Oh, I did that before. And when you do it again, it's not such a problem. So I think and sometimes when you get close to the yield locus, you also get very close to failing and you have mm. to be ready to do that and then pick yourself up and dust yourself down. And if you've made a mistake... Acknowledge that and then try and put it all right. Why is failure so important? I mean, you have created this term of productive failure. Why mm. is it important for all of us and for students and for researchers to fail? Well, you're not, I mean, innovation, creating new ideas or idea entrepreneurism happens at the edge. And you're not, if you're not exploring the edge consistently and widely, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't fail. 
Or conversely, the only way you know that you're at the edge, really looking at cutting-edge ideas or cutting-edge performance in any field, is that you have a healthy dose of failure in it. You know, sometimes when people bring projects or you visit labs and say, oh, how, are your, how many projects do you have? And they say, oh, we have 10, 15 projects, and they're all successful. Well, <laughs> you know, yes, if they're all successful, that means you're not pushing the edges very much. So I think failure is not just a motivational thing or an inspirational thing. It's an actually a metric that you can use both personally in groups and in institutions to say, okay, how, how much are you pushing the boundaries the capacities and the performance. And I think that's why failure is important. So let's speak about students. What kind of talent do students need today in this time and age to succeed at ETH Zurich? Well, I think they need to have a certain intellectual um, you know, capacity because if they don't, they're not going to be able to uh, pick up and run with the ideas that we uh, present them. We want them to have the ability to have basically uh, um, build a, a fundamental uh, so foundation of basic science and mathematics because we are a technical university. We do tons of analysis. We synthesize it. We pull it all together and And we want people who can have that so-called T in the education for talent. But T also looked at in terms of having a broad um, base of understanding around the area that you're particularly interested in. And then a deep dive down the, uh, down the T so that you really have specific expertise in a particular area. So when you put all of the T's together, all of the talents at ETH together, um, they are able to take on a problem of global significance and bringing in their expertise help to try and push the boundaries and come up with uh, a solution. So do you have a prototypical student for ETH, like an idea for one of them? No, I think the diversity of backgrounds from which people come is just as important as talent. Talent has to be diverse, um, you know. So we have the talent, we have the T, and I think you have to have the transfer as well. So you can have deep foundational knowledge, you can have the personality, and then you'll have to be able to transfer what you have to novel situations, to complex problems. And I think from a learning scientist point of view, research has shown that, that that link, the transfer to complex problems, to novel situations, to work, to life, is the is the big a, a very big hurdle for students. So is diversity important also because people come from different school backgrounds, for example, that they bring different talents or different they were educated in a different way? So different cultural backgrounds different physical abilities. Somebody sitting in a wheelchair is going to be looking at solving a problem in a completely different way. Mm. And sometimes they come up with brilliant solutions. And you think, oh, gosh, why didn't I? Well, the reason why I didn't think about it is because I don't face that challenge. Mm. Uh, and, and that's why we are a melting pot for students from very many nations. We are completely open to that. The only thing is they have to be talented and have shown that they have the intellectual capacity. Mm. And I'd like to add on to that a bit too. IQ is one thing. EQ, emotional mm. intelligence, is also, I think, very, very important. Mm -hmm. Is that something you teach here as well? 
Well, that's something you can't really teach. You can teach knowledge explicitly, but things like EQ and social interaction and the ability to work together with other people of diverse backgrounds, that's not something you teach, but you create environments within which these things naturally happen. You know, so kinds of uh, project work, uh, internships, uh, getting people together to solve design problems. ETH week, ETH, for example. ETH week. What do you I mean, do at ETH week for people who don't know? Well, we have about 200 students from all of our departments and they come together for a whole week and they work on a so-called problem of global importance. So um, we've done five of them or we've done four and we have another one coming up imminently. Uh, food water, manufacturing for the future, um, energy matters, and this time it's all about mobility. Mm -hmm. And they, the lovely thing about this is they do a bit of research at the beginning, and then unlike any other teaching here, they decide the question they're going to answer. And then they work in a team, and they do some design thinking, and this is a very, very emotional uh, and intense experience. And then they decide what question and they try and solve it and they present it at the end. And the, the, the atmosphere is absolutely incredible. And many students have written to me to say the most important experience they had actually was um, doing this ETH week. And they're still in touch with friends that they made then. And sometimes they take the idea that they came up with and they take it into the hatchery in the student project house and they work on that and uh, maybe at some stage in the future there will be a startup. So I think that's really, mm -hmm. um, really quite interesting and fun. Now imagine if we could do that more and more and that's my push uh, <laughs> in the curriculum, right? So if you do more and more of that within the constraints of what's possible in a higher education context, obviously, but the more we do that, I think the greater the development of those kinds of skills uh, we will have. So what does ETH do to attract talents, not only students, but also researchers? Maybe we can ask you, what, how were you attracted to ETH, Manu? Well, I was. I actually had the opportunity um, in 2014. Uh, it was, I think I was invited to give a talk here uh, by my colleague Elspeth Stern. And then um, we kept in touch, and at a, at a certain point, ETH had this professorship that opened up, and um, and it was one of the first professorships in learning sciences in higher education. So I was just naturally very attracted to it, and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> and we were absolutely thrilled, actually. So this sort of coincided a little bit with when I became rector, and oh, gosh, this is amazing. We're going to learn so much, and we have, uh, we're looking forward to, to it. And every time I listen to Manu, I think, oh, so many things to do. Um, but we're very, very interested in working together. I think the most important thing for me as a member of the executive board is that if you attract and then choose the right professors, they will create their ecosystem around their group. And that means the uh, scientists and engineers that they employ and the doctoral students and the postdocs who then come in. And at the same time, if they're outstanding in research also, that they really bring their skills into the teaching as well, so that the teaching is based on modern research, really very uplifting and exciting, as well as all the basics that we have to, to learn. Um, and that these people then will have a massive influence throughout our university, because basically it runs 
on the professors, uh, but everybody's important mm -hmm. and everybody has to have talents and bring their talents to the team and they're all multidimensional and variable and whatever and we need all of them in these diverse teams to help us succeed. Yeah, and I would say that as a researcher coming in, uh, one of the things that's really been wonderful here is, um, you know, the amount of trust that's given, the autonomy, the infrastructure, both financially and otherwise, the ecology within which you do your work is just, uh, just amazing. And I think that those are good ways to attract people. S students are, are interesting because we are within the Swiss educational system, which means that Anybody who goes to the gymnasium and, and, and earns their matura has the right to come and study at ETH and any other Swiss university in whatever they want to do, which is a bit of a challenge for them and us. So we don't really attract people so much at the bachelor level. Maybe 14% come from other countries, but they have to be competent in German. And they have to take an exam. And they have to take an entrance exam, and that's important. Roughly 50% pass, by the way. And at Master, however, it's a different thing. And here, these rankings that have developed have had a massive impact on making the students aware of what ETH has to offer, and so we've had massive increases in applications. It goes up 5 or 10% every year. And so the departments have to make the decision about which of those students they will make an offer to. And then after that, the students will decide whether or not they want to come. So that means that you find super talents that apply for the ETH and then you choose them and they then decide to come or not. So it's yes. a bit of a complicated... It's very complicated because the, the, the super, super, super duper talents will have applied to lots of different top universities. And a lot of it will depend on whether they get a scholarship. So we have our mm -hmm. marvellous excellence scholarship and opportunity uh, programme, for example. We have master scholarship programme to help support those students. Yeah, because and speaking about diversity, it's not that easy no. to live and pay rent and no, pay exactly. food and tuition in Switzerland. So all of those things are part and parcel of the picture that a student will be uh, painting about a particular place, and then they will make their decision. And the yield of offer to people coming is often um, can be ranging depending upon which you're studying, anything from 30% to 60%, for example. But the Swiss students have the right to come here if they come from another university. And the Fachhochschule, or the University of Applied Science students, are allowed to come if they do some extra credits, anything between 30 to 60 credits, to fill up the gaps uh, to make sure that they're also ready and able to complete their master's here. So what does ETH do to win those super talents that applied to many different schools? How does ETH keep up in the competition? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I get lots of emails about, I can help you with all of these students and you have to do all of this and pay us. We don't actually need to do anything. Okay. And we're very clear about communicating what we offer and it seems to just happen and the growth is amazing we now have 21,000 students and actually this is a big challenge because we want to make sure that we 
retain a very strong focus also on our Swiss students because we are well supported by the Swiss taxpayer. This is a incredibly important to us. But we'd love to mix them with talented uh, students from other countries. And what's absolutely fascinating is that when you look at the statistics of the marks that people get at the end of the Masters are Swiss students who have done their bachelors at ETH map absolutely on top of um, the students who come from other countries. So what we can say is getting a bachelor at ETH and going through our selection exams and is fantastic also for the future of Switzerland. But then when we match it with talent from outside, this is also great. And in two years, we have a, a programme where they've got up and running. They're as good as our graduates, but also diverse. Yeah, I think students talk to each other. Right, so part of the circle of how people get to a good place or come to universities like ETH is, you know, the word spreads around that you are getting a very good learning experience, and that is relevant. And to the extent that the learning experience at ETH is relevant to their work and life, I think more students would apply, and I think that's implicitly or uh, is what is happening, especially with Manu's work now about the student-centered teaching, even more so then we are evolving. We're not standing still. We're not saying we were once wonderful. Uh, we realise that we have to move with the times. And there are all sorts of very interesting new educational models. And so if we don't do that, then we're not living up to the promise that we should be. So is it different to be a student today or is it very different to be a student today than 30 years ago at ETH? Well, I, I didn't study at ETH Neither did not I. 30 years ago, <laughs> so I don't know what ETH was uh, 30 years ago. Um, I think in some sense, yes, it is very different. Uh, the competition, the, just the sheer amount of content, because in 30 years, science has progressed a lot and they, they need to know a lot more. Um, and like I said, the competition is much greater. The, the pressures on them are a lot greater with the, with the new media and social media. Uh, so I think being a teenager or a student today is probably a lot harder than it used to be when I was a teenager. Or when I was in school. And so, people are watching you too, so you, you, you can't get away with quite as much as exactly. possibly... You mean as we a professor? Did, we did then. No, no, as a student. And and one of, I came here nearly 23 years ago, so it's not quite the 30 years you talked about. But it was very hair professor doctor. It was very sort of... If I say Germanic, it's not meant to be rude, but it, it, it was, and it was like very formal... And I came from a completely laid-back um, group in Cambridge where we called the professor by his first name, even though he was kind of the Einstein of uh, soil mechanics. It's a bit of a joke there, of course, <laughs> one stone. Um, and, and, and it was a very, very different environment and atmosphere. And it, that has changed enormously over the years as we've moved from having, at that time, probably about... 40% um, foreign professors, of which the vast majority came from Germany or German-speaking countries. And nowadays, 70% foreign professors, of which a vast number have come back to Europe or have come to Europe from the United States. Completely different mm. and, and very interesting, very dynamic. Yeah. 
Another and more trend, from Asia too. Yeah. <laughs> another trend that's happened over the past 20, 30 years is the increasingly increasing structuring of the learner's experience, all the way from kindergarten. You know, the, the, there used to be a focus on free supervised play, but free play in which children's, children could, you know, tinker around and be, be messy bored. and be bored as well to the primary school where it wasn't still as structured as it is today. So I think there's this increasing structuring of the learning and life of young students, which as you grow and mature into an adult, you need this freedom, a certain amount of freedom to, to be who you want to be, to realize who you are. And I think there's a danger that, and I think we're beginning to realize as well in a lot of systems that this is perhaps detrimental all the way mm -hmm. from young to now to the development of young young people and talent development in general. Mm -hmm. There was a lovely statement, let them eat dirt <laughs> and, and, and let them fall over and scuff their knees and, and, mm -hmm. and fail and pick yeah. themselves up and keep going. All of this stuff that you did, that if you didn't kill yourself or damage yourself badly, then nobody was watching you and you could get away with all sorts of exciting okay. things. Okay. And, and that, that was a, an important part of childhood, I think, in, at least in my uh, time. Absolutely. So one question about learning and about talent, skills and knowledge, mm -hmm. in what balance should that be if you're talking to someone who is, let's say, 15 years old and is bored with school and wants to change the world? How important is it to be, to have the knowledge and to be skilled? Well, um, skills and knowledge to me are just analytical dichotomies. To do anything great or even good, you need both. Yeah? Um, if you want to drive a car well or you want to swim well, in learning sciences, we, in research, we talk about knowing that, knowing how, and knowing why. And this roughly map onto knowledge and skills. So knowing that to drive a car, you need to do A, B, C, D, E is, not, is necessary, but not sufficient. You still need to know how to drive a car. But if you really want to be a brilliant car designer or a scientist, you need to know why the underlying mechanisms work the way they work. So I don't buy into this knowledge skills divide as much. What I buy into are creating learning environments where the coupling between knowledge and skills, knowing that, knowing how, knowing why, are so tightly coupled that whatever they do, whatever they experience in that environment actually makes them learn deeper and then that transfers better to novel situations as well. I think this is exactly why the extracurricular projects like um, Swiss Loop, where they're building a capsule that whizzes through a vacuum and mm -hmm. accelerates and breaks down, uh, and indeed the um, Formula Electric, where they're doing the driverless version, where the racing car goes around the circuit and picks up uh, hints using sort of semi-remote sensing and then learns to drive that as fast as possible, or building a concrete canoe and racing it. I'd say our students are lousy at the racing bit, but they're jolly good at the technical stuff. And they all come back and they and they win things. Or iGEM, which is a, a biological machine that they build and, and they compete against each other. And when they put themselves under self-imposed pressure with a sort of competition where they all have to be performing on that day, at that moment the amount of learning is absolutely amazing. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it's what they call a flop. But actually, 
even when you've so-called flopped, you've learned an awful lot. And I think this is a, a tremendous part of what we can offer at ETH now. And we support and encourage people to do this in that we do not say you have to finish your bachelor in three years. You have to finish your master in one and a half to two years, which is absolutely lousy for our performance in the rankings. But I don't care as rector because the learning experience that the mm. students gain from this is absolutely invaluable. So we've been speaking about talent and about all the good sides of it and the competition and going to your edges and whatever. But is there also a downside? Mental health. All universities have a growing challenge with mental health. In fact, probably we could say in society as a whole, we have a growing problem with mental health. And we have to find ways in which we can help people to support other people and we have structures in place and systems in place if somebody gets to the stage that they're starting to go out of balance. So we have people who don't succeed in their studies, we have a, an advisory system, we have a joint uh, psychological advisory service with the University of Zurich, the students have a sort of a helpline where you can call, etc. So there's a whole range of this, but it's something we need to look at again, because our recent student survey organised by the Student Association identified that this is continuing to ramp up. And I think that is a challenge. And I hope that each individual, part of our ETH family, will keep an eye around them and, if necessary, put a proverbial arm around their neighbour and say, can I help? Which brings us back to EQ, in a sense, also. Mm -hmm. So the other, I mean, on sure. the challenge, I would think of it as a challenge rather than a downside, is the problem of equity. Uh, when you thinking about developing talent, not everybody, if there's no equity in opportunities that people have, um, then I think that's you're basically, basically any nation or any institution is underdetermining what it can do with the human resources that it has. So I think that's a huge challenge that we have to solve of equalizing the opportunity across a multidimensional, be it gender, be it cultural background and so on and so forth. Because what we often don't talk about in talent is also the role of luck. To be at the right <laughs> to be place at the right at place the right at the right time. time. Now I know luck favors the prepared, and pre preparation is a function of opportunity, and that's where equity becomes incredibly important. Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that and do something about it. So ETH brings out very uh, superb uh, research and very talented um, students and professors. And one side of the excellence of ETH is also that industry is in interested in people who are very good researchers. So each of you now have 30 seconds for a slogan why people should stay here at ETH and not go to industry or to other schools. I think if you, you've got to decide if you're in the business of knowledge creation. I consider myself to be, I'm an entrepreneur of ideas. I love working with ideas and ideas that can change systems in the world, perhaps. Then being in a research, a good ecology of research as, it, as ETH offers is one of the best things you can do. And I think if you're given an opportunity, for example, to do doctoral studies here, you have to work out whether you're going to be able to work with and learn from 
and help this professor also to discover all sorts of new things. So it's your personal choice. And actually, maybe it means you should go away from ETH and come back later. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also important to say. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Manu. This was Rector Sarah Springman and Manu Kapoor from ETH Zurich here in the ETH studio at the main building of the university. We talked about talent today on the occasion of the Times Higher Education World Academic Summit hosted by ETH Zurich in September 2019 under the title How Talent Thrives. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri. I produced this episode together with Thies Wachter's Audio Story Lab, sound design Luki Fretz. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>